This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart of the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I am your host, Sabrina Ferminger, and today I am delighted to welcome filmmaker Tamara Mariam Dawit to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Tamara has many aunts, is in fact rich with aunts, but she never knew her aunt Sally. In fact, she'd never heard of this aunt until she'd moved from her home in Canada to her father's homeland of Ethiopia and glimpsed a photo of this beautiful unknown woman in her grandmother's home and, because Tamara's Tamara, she began asking questions. This is the starting point for Finding Sally, a stirring documentary feature film that screens at the 2020 DOXA Documentary Film Festival, which, because of the global global pandemic, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, runs online from June 18th to the 26th. Like her brother and surviving sisters, Sally had begun her life as an aristocrat and a dignitary's daughter. Her father's posting as an Ethiopian diplomat meant that the family lived in various countries, including, beginning in 1968, Canada. Sally went to Carleton University in Ottawa before traveling back to Ethiopia for a holiday in the summer of 1973. In a few short months, Sally's life changed drastically and mirrored the tumult and revolution that was facing her country as Emperor Haile Selassie, Ethiopia's head of state and a close acquaintance of her father, was overthrown by a military junta known as the Derg. Soon, Sally went from being an outgoing party girl to a communist and women's group leader who gave speeches against the Ethiopian government. Aunt Sally would soon be swept up in and lost to something known as the Red Terror, a bloodbath that ran from 1977 to 1978, which Amnesty International has stated was responsible for the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people. And the Derg would remain in power until 1991. Like most Ethiopians, the DeWitts learned to stay silent about events that occurred during the Red Terror. And doing so meant that they never found out what really happened to Aunt Sally. In Finding Sally... Tamara finds answers. Tamara DeWitt joins us over Skype from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Tamara, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you for having me on and making time to talk about the film. Okay, I was so impressed. Even before we, we get to know Aunt Sally, I'm impressed by all of your aunts that we we get to meet who really are the ones who kind of facilitate your journey into your family's past. So talk to me about your your aunts as a group, you know, and when you moved from Canada to Ethiopia, who you encountered and the kind of this community. I love ants so much and I love your aunts specifically, but this community of ants that that welcomed you there and what and how you would describe them. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting or that changed when I moved to Ethiopia is, of course, I always knew my aunts, but I knew them, you know, as me being a child and they being adults. And there was, you know, this this disconnect. But because I moved back to Ethiopia in my 30s, it gave me an opportunity to get to know them and have a relationship with them sort of as peers Mm. um, as much as you can in that respect. And, you know, one of my aunts told me early in my research for this project that, you know, they had been raised by their father basically to be men. They and that, you know, wasn't really how young Ethiopians were raised in the 1950s and 60s. And he sort of told them, 
you can do whatever you want. You have as much power as your brother or as I do. Um, and I think that's why they're all really so, so bold. Um, sometimes maybe even too bold. And I've also um, inherited <laughs> that trait. But I think something that really, um, you know, it was part of their formation and their growth and, and their worldview. And that made them sort of different, perhaps, from many, many women in Ethiopia. Yeah. Despite that boldness, uh, they were not bold. I'm going to reword that. I don't like what I was about to say. They're, your family has had an unwillingness until you began poking and asking questions to speak about their, about their sister and their daughter, Sally. Um, t- tell me about that unwillingness to speak about Sally and the process of getting them on board for this project, especially after four decades of not speaking about her. Yeah, and I think that that's really sort of a cultural thing. I found um, that in Ethiopia, we don't talk as much about our feelings and Mm -hmm. um, how we feel about situations or how we feel about the things around us. Yet for me, coming from Canada, And, you know, I remember in grade nine in high school in Ottawa being told you have to say uh, how you feel. And these statements of like, you make me feel this way when you say this or when you do that. So that was very much sort of the background I was coming from. And that's, I think, what what gave me the ability to push them Mm. and to open up this conversation. Because it was for them, I don't think something they were hiding on purpose. It was much more so because it was painful and it had been um, illegal and dangerous to talk about Sally. So when you have that sort of cultural thing labeled on layered on top with the um, the fear of the state punishing you, then it becomes just sort of something you push into your subconscious. Yeah. What were some of the the things that you learned about Ethiopian history from this that you might not have known before? Or was this a lot of all a discovery for you about the Red Terror, about the Derg, about ERP? Yeah, I mean, I knew, I I guess, sort of the highlights, Um, but not, you know, not all the details, not the details of, you know, the ideology of the the communist organization Sally joined, Mm. not the details of brutality of the killings and the tortures during the Red Terror. And also because, you know, my grandfather, as you mentioned earlier, worked for the emperor. So the the viewpoint that I got of the imperial government and and of the emperor was very flattering. Mm. And when you really dig that period and you look at why the revolution happened and why people were pushing for change, well, the emperor is a human and he's not perfect. And there's, you know, all sorts of shades of gray in terms of some of the great things he did and some of the not so great things. So for me, doing this project gave me a much more complete um, access to the country's history. Yeah. What I find very compelling. So I've watched the film a couple of times. Uh, once was a few weeks ago, and then I also watched it uh, yesterday. And I mean, we are in a stirring, startling, tumultuous period of history here in North America right now that's inspiring, you know, protests all over the world. And, you know, people are, you know, revolting. It's possible that we will have some kind of revolution. You know, what do you what do you think your study into history, into your family can teach us about revolutions in general and maybe even this particular moment in history? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the questions I had asked my aunts and Sally's comrades was, you know, what would Sally be doing today? Mm. Um, and you know, her comrades all said, you know, she would still be with us fighting for all all of these changes. And that's, you know, very much what I think, whether she's was in Canada or in Ethiopia, she was always advocating um, for rights and for, for and for equality. But I mean, I think the thing we can learn whether we're looking at, you know, the revolution that Sally took part in in Ethiopia or the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement now in North America is that we have to learn from our past because all of these things that are being brought up in Ethiopia today in terms of the issues that young people have with the government, many of them mirror what happened in the 1970s. Mm. And I think you can say this about the issues with 
with racism and with police brutality. These aren't new requests. These aren't new issues. And when we don't um, pay attention to people who are protesting and pay attention to what young people are calling for, these issues just sort of grow um, and they don't they don't go away. So I think um, there's a lot of similarities between the two. Yeah. Did you have anybody telling you not to make this film? Did you get any pushback at all? Um, not so much um, pushback, but certainly people who, because it's a painful period, who didn't want to be interviewed. Mm. Um, people who would give a lot of information about Sally, you know, even details about what she was wearing or about their own experiences, um, but weren't willing to do that with, with the film crew around. And I can completely, you know, understand that. And that's also partly why the film is really much about my family and what happened to my family, but it's a reflection about what happened to nearly every Ethiopian or Eritrean family. So I think that my family, I was lucky that they were, you know, brave enough to be open and talk about these things. And hopefully that is a, is a cue for other families to be able to do the same, um, just perhaps not in such a public format. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to give too much away. Uh, and I know that in the intro, it might seem like I gave a lot away, but I didn't. There's so much there, uh, including a journey to northern Ethiopia that is, I mean, just took my breath away. And I, I'm still haunted by by the film's conclusion. But for you, what were what were some of your most memorable moments from from filming? Um, I mean, I think from filming, probably filming in, in the northern, northern Ethiopia yeah. and, you know, also from my research in going to meet all of Sally's comrades in different parts of the world, um, because a lot of them looked at me and told me that I looked like Sally, which was really shocking and weird to me because no one in my family had said that. Um, and when we were filming in the villages in the north, people kept coming up to me and saying, oh, yeah, we know why you're here because you look like her. Or we, And the amount of people that remend- remembered her, you know, over 40 years later was also um, really unexpected to me. Yeah. How did what you discover about Sally and her fate change your family? I mean, I think my family had bits, bits and pieces of information but I think when something's painful, that can also um, prevent you from digging into it further mm-hmm. because they certainly could have gone and, you know, found the people that I found and asked all of these questions. But it was much easier for me to do it as someone who's a bit further removed. So I think um, it's, it's helped for them to fill in the blanks. I mean, we can never know everything. And I think everyone who watches the film will come away with their own um, belief about what Sally did and why she did it. And we don't all have to align on that. And I think that's completely okay. Yeah. What about you? How did what you discover about Sally change you and, and how you see yourself in the context of your family in Ethiopia? Um, I mean, I think the biggest sort of learning curve for me was because I had, you know, a bit of information about the 1970s, but not everything. Mm-hmm. And then once I started to learn more, I was, you know, wondering why all of my aunts didn't, you know, stand up and take part the way Sally did. And I think, you know, I learned that everyone contributes in their own way. But also when I started hearing about what Sally was doing from her comrades who were with her, who had, you know, much better access to information, um, I really just found her to be brave and and incredible. Um, And I would wish that in the same situation, I would manage to do the same things. Oh, I imagine you would, because this is some fearless filmmaking right here. Uh, I did mention in the intro, and I'm sure everybody on the planet is aware, we are in the midst of a global pandemic. So talk to me a little bit about the, um, the challenges of promoting a film on the festival circuit during a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is the ability to connect with people. Um, Of 
course, like a lot of people are emailing and writing on social media, especially, you know, Ethiopians who say like, oh, this happened to my family or we saw the film and now I'm able to ask my mother about these things. Mm. Um, but not everyone will do that. So I think it's that that personal connection and those one to one conversations that you can have with people. And I think the also immediate ability after screenings to have a Q&A is sort of the biggest uh, missing piece for me. But we've been able to do a bit of that, you know, through online work. So I think you just sort of have to, um, you can't go roll with your plan B. You have to go with plan C, D, E, and F, and sometimes <laughs> Y instead, and just, you know, make it make it work. Because we don't really know how long this will go on for. Um, but I think it's been really good that most festivals have been able to quickly pivot and move online. Yeah, it's been amazing. And I'm so grateful that Doxa in particular and Hot Docs and documentary festivals have been able to carry on because I feel that documentary really has a role to play during this time. Um, What do you want the world to know about your Aunt Sally? What do you want to leave them with about her? I mean, I think for me, sort of my message with the film was just the importance of of critical thinking. Um, Because especially, you know, in Ethiopia, what I learned through making this film is that the history isn't taught. And because of a lot of the pain connected to it, families don't talk about it. And I think many, many countries that have, you know, painful parts of their history have that same sort of baggage. So I want people to really be inspired to feel brave um, and to sometimes, you know, sort through some of the things in in your family's past or in your country's past that can be difficult. But I think when you do that, it gives you the clarity to think critically about what you want in the future and the way forward. Yeah. Do you think that you'll be mining your family history again for for future projects, future films? Do you, is there more? Are there? I mean, I'd be so much like interested in hearing more about your grandparents. I mean, for a start, they could get their own. They could get their own standalone film. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think one, um, the last two films I've made, I was in the films and that is exhausting um, to be <laughs> and then also in the shot. So I know I'm definitely going to take a break from that for a moment. But I mean, the other projects I have in my pipeline are also to do with looking at sort of un, unreported on aspects of Ethiopian history. Mm. Um, but as well, I, I also produce Ethiopian directors because I really, um, you know, want to work on making sure that stories from Ethiopia and from East, East Africa are told by the point of view of the filmmakers here. Year in, year out, Doxa Documentary Film Festival brings us the true stories of some truly colorful characters. And although this year is a year unlike other years, what with the plague and all, Doxa has opted to move online, there's no lack of colorful characters in this year's lineup. And Eddie Haymore might be the most colorful character of all. Eddie is the subject of the feature-length documentary, Eddie's Kingdom. I'm going to try my best to keep spoilers to a minimum, because peeling back the layers of Eddie's story is part of the joy of this film. But even the Coles Notes version is jaw-dropping. A Lebanese immigrant to Canada purchases an island in the Okanagan, determined to transform it into a Middle Eastern amusement park, despite the outspoken objection of many locals. His story takes many twists and turns and includes international kidnapping, an Okanagan castle, Riverview, and an embassy hostage-taking in Beirut. Honestly, I watched Eddie's Kingdom with my jaw on the floor, and I am delighted to welcome its filmmaker, that's Greg Crompton, to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast to tell me all about it. Greg, hi! Welcome to the hello, podcast! Hello. Okay, Greg. Yeah, I'm glad to be on. I... I I I mean I want to just cut to it. Eddie, Eddie's story. How did you first learn about him? And I mean I guess I know the answer to this question. Why did you want to tell his story? <laughs> yeah, I mean I guess why is because it's just such a wild story and 
it, like you said, it, it it's a jaw jaw dropping story. It's bonkers. Like every time, yeah, you're like, <laughs> uh, you know, every time I did more research on the subject, there was a, there would be another little twist and turn, and you'd be like, what? What? Okay, I, you know, and so it just made every time I like learn more, it was just like, okay, this story has got to be told, and it had never been told in Canadian cinema, whether or cinema at all, whether that's like in a fictionalized version or in a documentary and so like this has to be done and i have no idea why it hasn't been done yet so that was kind of impetus um and but i grew up in Kelowna, so i kind of knew about this eddie haymore and his vision to create this middle eastern theme park um because we would both buy the island uh when in the 80s and you'd see like kind of the 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 Bits of the theme parker were kind of in shambles. Yeah. And also we drive by his castle in Peachland and drive by the statue of him <laughs> pointing at something which turned out to be the island. I was not so... expecting the statue. And even though it sounds like we're giving so many spoilers, we're not. There is so much there. But, you know, I, I, I wish... Now, I'll admit, I did learn about this a little bit through BC Was Awesome. Uh which is um, the Vancouver is Awesome web series about the history of BC. So I believe I'd first heard like a little bit. It must have been like a six or 10 minute version of the story. But mm-hmm. the, and you were involved with that. Am I correct in? Yeah. Yeah, I was director producer on that one. OK, good, good. And that's a fantastic series as well. But just that. Like, so Thanks. what were some of the realities of Eddie's history that really surprised you? Like you, you mentioned in general terms, but what, what were some of the things that you you that totally seemed unbelievable? Like when he told them to you and then you researched and, and you discovered that, like, nope, this is actually totally true. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. We, I mean, I think it started when we were doing the BC Was Awesome segment and, you know, kind of the, the overall like view from people who grew up in the Okanagan was like, oh yeah, you know, this guy was a wingnut and he was off his rocker. Yeah. And so when we were doing the story, I was like, for research for BC Was Awesome, we actually um, contacted a um, reporter who renamed Nameless in Kelowna who you know, was a reporter from the seventies up until now in Kelowna. And I asked him, I was like, you know, do you, would you want to be on camera for this? And he was like, no way. However, Eddie was screwed over. And I was like, what? I thought Eddie was the one who did all the bad stuff. And so that was like, okay, wow. There's two sides of the story. And actually Eddie might have a leg to stand on. And so we met him in a, in a gas station parking lot, this reporter. And he's like, here's a bunch of information. And Bob, our host, was like, can I take your photo? And he's like, no way. So there was like this intrigue of like, whoa, okay. So we're stumbling on this story that a reporter in Kelowna doesn't want to talk about because he's worried about like blowback from from government or, you know, from from, um, some higher ups in government to this day. So it was like, okay, wow, there's a lot here. And so that was one of them for sure that kind of got me excited. And then like there's, uh, I don't want to spoil it too much, but Eddie, you know, threatens people. (laughs) <laughs> and and one of the things he does is he like gets offended by someone and he wants and he buys a gun and he he's planning on assassinating him and I was oh, like yeah. wow that's a wild story oh, but I actually talked to Eddie's lawyer and he's like he in a way I don't want to again spoil it but he but Eddie's lawyer corroborates that and I was like wow and Eddie's admitting to this in front of on camera. So again, that was another one where it's like, okay, wow, we got, that's a challenge is we needed to get some corroboration from other people outside of Eddie. And there were stories that Eddie would tell me that I just didn't put in the documentary because I just couldn't confirm they were true. But Mm. the wildest story of him taking over an embassy is totally true because there's, you know, tons of witnesses and we got some of them in the, in the documentary. And, you know, so, so that in a way it's like his wildest story is the most, most corroborated. Yeah. Wow, I would, I mean, we can talk off the record. I would love to hear the stories that you didn't include in the documentary. <laughs> um, do, you, do you like Eddie? Like, is it important as a documentary filmmaker to like your documentary subject? Because he is not perfect. Like, in fact, he's far from it. Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge. And, and no, I think that's a good question. I don't think it is important to like the people you're you're featuring because then I think it really reduces the stories you tell and the, and the stories you talk about. And for me, it's important to tell stories that with characters who you may not like, but who have an impact on our world, you yeah. know? And so I think for me, it was like, okay, 
my challenge was like, you know, he's a charming guy. And so I think part of it, or he was, I mean, he still is a charming guy, but I think he had more charm when he was younger. Mm. Um, but, but my, my, my challenge is like, I don't want to get too close to him, but obviously I want him to feel comfortable with me. Yeah. And so I did that through honesty with him saying, Eddie, we're going to tell your story. Um, but we're also going to other people who can, who are going to give a counter countering view. Yeah. And so I think that honesty with him allowed me to kind of like create that closeness, but not get too on his side because yeah. he understood where he's coming from. Um, yeah. So I think that, that helped me, you know, keep him at a, a bit of a distance. Mm. Um, but as far as like whether, I mean, I enjoyed spending time with him. Like we would play, we played backgammon when the cameras are off because, you know, he likes to play backgammon and so things like that. Um, but he's also done some things that like I completely disagree with and it, and it, and, it, and you know, with, with domestic abuse and, mm. and, uh, and kidnapping and things like that, where you're just like, there's no reason why that's an okay thing to do. And he doesn't see it that way. And so there's some massive differences I have with him. Um, and so it just adds to the, you know, my, my being conflicted with who he is as a person. And I mean, um, you know, he, he has a leg to stand on, you know, we did uncover a bunch of things that, that, that did show that he, he was uh, a victim of some serious conspiracies too. Yeah. How much do you think racism uh, played a part in how Eddie was treated or, or even, you know, some cultural misunderstanding about Middle Eastern cultures, you know, like, I mean, if we, if we remove, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that came after, uh, or even his, the, what happened in his family, like just that the, the fact that he wanted to start a Middle Eastern, you know, amusement park on this island, and then the the locals were upset about it. Many people were upset about it in the area. Like, how much do you think, like that, that on its own is a story in and of itself. Like how, like, do you think that racism played a part in it at all? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that was, that's a tough question because I think the people I asked whom, you know, who would be the best people to, to answer that, the people who are against it, yeah, totally denied it. But I, but I think that's going to be a hard thing to admit, you know, like, yeah. oh yeah, I, uh, you know, like I, if you're asking me, you know, for them to admit that, I think that that would be a challenge. I do think though that there was a certain amount of that based on, you know, like Michelle, who is Eddie's daughter, who grew up in, you know, who was in Kelowna at that time. Granted, she was a kid, but, you know, she, she had a good perspective on it. You know, that Eddie was there with his flashy businessmen with all these gold chains and gold mm. rings and kind of like, you know, he had a way of, you know, dealing with people that was outside the norm. Yeah. And he was from Lebanon. And I think, you know, Omar, our, uh, kind of a journalist that we interviewed did speak about it that, that you know, it's, he, he just has a different way of being. And also at that time in the world, you know, like there was a, there was like this negative view of, of, of that world. You know, there was the, there was oil crisis. There was, there was a few things that kind of painted, you know, people from that part of the world in a, in a negative light. And I think Eddie coming there, trying to kind of push the, push the boundaries or the, the legalities of what he was doing a little bit, I think rubbed people the wrong way. Um, so I think there was, but, but, you know, certainly no one was targeting him and using that language. There mm. was a few people were, you know, there, there was mentioned that there was certain negative language used in newspaper articles and stuff like that, but it wasn't overwhelming evidence. And we did a bunch of research and looked at a bunch of newspaper articles at the time. And cause that, I mean, there's no footage of it really. Um, I mean, there's, but anyways, not enough to kind of put that in perspective. So yeah, yeah I think there was, but, um, I think also, you know, it was also Eddie's personality that got him in hot water too. Um, one thing that I didn't put in the documentary is that, you know, Kelowna was this big, you know, place where you bring your family and there was the Flintstones park and the Okanagan game farm and these water slides. So it was like a place that people would have these kind of wild idea theme parks. Yeah. And so for some reason, this Middle Eastern one gained, you know, like people were against it. Yeah. And so it, it, to me, maybe that feeds into this idea that it, well, it was this cultural aspect that, and what Eddie was doing that, that was against. But I think that, you know, there was the environmental aspect. People didn't want this island destroyed. And, you know, so there's, I think it's, it's murky, I guess I would say, but I think racism was a, was a part of it. Yeah. Now you have mentioned, um, 
Eddie's personality, uh, the volatility is, uh, can be incendiary. Um, knowing that about him, uh, did you, uh, like, has he watched the film? What does he think? Like, is he coming after, <laughs> after you with, with, with all of his fire and passion? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was a little worried as we were doing it. I was like, I wonder how he's going to react. Like, there's one thing him saying, oh, yeah, yeah, tell all sides of the story. And then when you actually do that and he disagrees vehemently with some sides of it, how he would react to me. I mean, Greg, but, just uh, to interrupt, like you, you remember in the last few years, there was the subject of a local documentary who got so upset at how he was portrayed. He like he showed up and he like protested at the screening and the police were called. Really? Which I don't know that one. What was that? Oh, that was uh, it was the okay. I'm opening Google sandwich uh, <laughs> Nazi. The sandwich Nazi. Uh, oh, yeah, really? it was uh, about by. Uh, let me find this. It was directed by Lewis Bennett, and it was uh, and the film now is on Vimeo. You can watch it. But yeah, it when it premiered, um, he he came. He raised a fuss, and the police had to be called at a no Vancouver way. International Film Festival screening. So. <laughs> Wow. I, I did uh, think about, I thought about the sandwich Nazi as I was watching this. I'm like, I wonder, because this guy, like, age does not seem to have slowed him down in the least. No, no it truly is not. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I guess I was a little concerned, but I think he's, he's seen it. We, we showed him a cut and yeah, he was, he was, he was pretty, uh, I would say angry is a, is a good word, but, uh, but I think I just kept on saying to him, Eddie, you know, he told you that I would be telling all sides of the story. And I think part of it is like he didn't disagree with some of the things like like this, the idea of kidnapping or, or domestic abuse. But yeah. but he just didn't feel that that was part of the story that needed to be told, you know. So mm. so that was an interesting part. But, uh, you know, overall, he's he still wants his island back. And yeah. so I think he sees this film as a good way to kind of get back in the news and get people talking about it. And who knows, maybe it, he'll, he'll get back, he'll get it back. And so I think that's his view. Yeah. So he's a little he's a little frustrated. He he'd like to do things differently in the film, um, but overall, like he lives in Edmonton, and, and if we screened it there, like you know, if there was no COVID and and we could you know screen in Edmonton, he'd come he'd come out for sure. Yeah. And you know, he'd probably say hello to me. And so, uh, yeah, I think overall it was best outcome. You know, because I felt like I did. It wasn't a puff piece on Eddie. Like I was happy that like we told kind of you know both sides of the story. Um, and I think if he was totally happy with it, I would be actually a little more concerned. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, frankly, he <laughs> is his own. Right. He is his own worst enemy. You know, like I, I just, I, I cannot wait for my listeners to watch this film because I am dying to talk about it with everybody. <laughs> uh, and I know I have my own opinions about this, and I know that people are complicated. But oh, yeah. like, what do you like? Do you think he's a good guy? Like, and what do you think motivates him after spending all of this time with him? I know that this is a discussion that you literally have in the film about what motivates him, but mm -hmm. I'd be interested in hearing your point of view. Yeah, I mean, the good guy. I don't know. Like, are any of us totally good people? You know, or like <laughs> totally, totally black and white, right? Yeah. Um, I think he, but he's like he's extreme. So like. His, you know, his, the goodness of him is trying to access justice, and then the, the you know, maybe the dark side of that is his complete obsession and 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 like doesn't care about anyone else but himself. His narcissism, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I'll. That was the first part of the question. What was the second part of the question? Um, Whether he's good and well, what motivates him? Yeah, what motivates him? Yeah. Um, you know, I think at a base is is that he is so obsessed with getting justice. And he has a leg to stand on. But what he does to get that justice is, you know, he, he, he doesn't care. It's like, you know, the ends justify the means in his. And so the, you know, the end is like, you know, getting justice for what was wrongly taken away from him. Yeah. And... But, and he'll do whatever it takes to do that. So because of that, he puts himself into all these really, like, pretty bad situations to, to do that. And so, um, you know, like when he came to Canada, he, he, he left Lebanon, in his words, a place that, that had a bunch of, you know, a lot of corruption. He comes to Canada, he experiences all this 
these positive interactions with the government and business. And so, he, you know, he, he, he's a successful businessman because of the state of kind of like rule of law in Canada. And then when he goes through this issue with the island, his vision of Canada is totally destroyed. So in his way, he's trying to get back to this kind of like, to, to kind of put Canada back in his good books. You know, hmm. so he's kind of got this complex motivation, which, which I think is really interesting because that's what he would always say is uh, I was like, why do you want the island? Like so many times. And, and one of the answers he usually give is, well, because it's my right, mm. you know? So it's like, you know, there's so many other things around that, but I think one of that's one of his like base motivations. Yeah. Oh, he's so interesting. And as I say, I can't wait to talk to people about it. What kind of discussions would you like this film to inspire? Like what questions would you like to leave your audiences with? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's 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 the the, the question of you know how your vision, one's obsession, one's desires can like negatively impact the people around you. You know, I think it is a story about like a cautionary tale of obsession and and how that can negatively impact your loved ones. Mm. You know, so I think it's 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 and, and also like when when to let go of 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 your dreams or, or what you perceive is the right way to live in the world. And when do you keep on pushing? Yeah. You know? Um, and, and I think, I think also just like what, what the, these sort of obsessions can, can do to someone, you know, I, I think it's interesting how like his vision was to have this kind of like utopia of people coming together and learning about middle East, middle Eastern culture and Canadians coming together and understanding like more of like a, worldview of, of you know, and, and trying to get people to to get along and, and show the cultures on the Middle Eastern theme park. But what that led to was him becoming totally isolated and completely obsessed and completely narcissistic, yeah. you know? So it's like, I think it's, it brings up a discussion of trying to um, get, yeah, understand what's important in, in, in your, in your world and, and kind of when to let certain things go. Yeah. Speaking of discussions um, and the world right now, uh, the world right now is a little bit of a garbage fire. Uh, we have uh, yeah. the plague happening. We're speaking to each other yeah. in core, the quarantine <laughs> of COVID-19. Um, there's also some incredible revolution going on right now around the issues mm-hmm. of social justice, racial justice. What role do you think documentaries can play in this time? Like, what can documentaries bring to the conversations that are happening right now around things like social justice and racial justice? Yeah, I mean, I think the great thing about documentary, and I think like well done documentary, is it shows it, it, it shines a light on or gives a perspective that you don't normally get. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the best documentaries for me are the people who are filming things from inside. You know like at the protests, but yeah. you know, to, to, to use like, let's say a black lives matter. Like, you know, you, you want to see people, their motivation, their passion, what they're dealing with on the day to day basis. Today, I am delighted to welcome Baljeet Sangra to the YVR screen scene podcast. Baljeet directed Have You Forgotten Me, an emotionally compelling documentary short that shines a light on North America's oldest Sikh temple and the years of struggle it represents. Anchored by the letters of a wife left behind, Baljeet considers one Sikh family's story of separation and assimilation and of creating community in a new country. The short film will screen as part of a shorts program at DOXA entitled BC Voices, and if Baljit's name sounds familiar, it's probably because you have heard me raving at some point about her feature-length documentary, Because We Are Girls. That brave and beautiful film elevated and amplified the story of Jiti, Kira, and Salakshana Puni, three sisters from BC's interior who survived childhood sexual abuse at the hands of a male relative in their conservative Indo-Canadian family and courageously brought charges against him decades later. Valjit Sangra, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Hi, good to be here. Okay, so let's let's go back in time then to the inspiration for Have, Have You Forgotten Me? What was your entry point into the story? Why did you want to tell it? 
Well, it sort of it started out. Uh, a friend of mine, um, Jessica Hallenbach, she has a production company, uh, Lantern Films, with her partner David Short, and they were commissioned to do a bunch of shorts on uh, history in BC. Oh. And I really commend them. They picked a lot of diverse stories and um, diverse storytellers. And I was approached to direct one on the Gorsic Temple in Abbotsford. So I was uh, familiar with it. I'd been there before. I went when they um, got the designation for historical status years mm-hmm. ago. John Chrétien was there. So I was. I had never seen it before that. And um, we went out there and we just uh, met... Uh, there's a museum downstairs, so we met the curators, we looked at all the photos, and our mind was sort of like, if these walls could talk, what stories would come here? Mm. And sort of with that in our mind, we just sort of um, met um, pioneer families from the area um, and just heard their stories. And one particular family, Nash Gill, um, who was born in the Fraser Valley, grew up at that temple. He had a beautiful stories of childhood there and community and resilience and... Um, his wife, he went to India and got married, and, you know, she shared some stories. And he, you know, you always have that archivist of a family. Well, he was the yeah. archivist of his family. He kept everything, photos, letters. He even had, um, you know, the suitcases father uh, brought from India when he immigrated in 1930. So, um, yeah, he had a lot of rich history. And one, um, when he said he had the letters, that really piqued our interest, and the letters were uh, from his mother to his father, and she was left behind. He came out to Canada. Um, he was sponsored by his uncle in 1930, and, you know, depression was shortly after, and just struggling and working and working in the farms and just a whole bunch of different types of jobs. He wasn't able to bring her, and also there was discriminatory um, immigration policies. Mm. We didn't want Indians to settle, right? So they made it very difficult for them to bring their wives. So this couple was separated for 20 years, and she just, you know, wrote these letters, which were very heartbreaking. And one of the lines in the letter is, have you forgotten me? Ugh. You know, and she's like, I've waited for you. My entire youth is gone. Yeah. So that just really touched us. And I really, personally, I really like um, to relook at history, especially South Asian history, uh, through a female lens, you know. Um, uh, yes. There's a lot of stories from the male perspective but you know the women were here what was their life like you know and when they immigrated they must have felt so alone living on these farms and you know just looking after the children and the you know um, the husbands are working in the mills and you know what was their life like and um, what was really interesting was that made that Sikh temple all the more special that was everything to them yeah and that wasn't just for religious uh, purposes you know they met um social, community issues, you know, that's where they gather to collect money, to fight, you know, you know, trying to get the right to vote or change, um, you know, immigration policies and and things like that. Um, so it's pretty spectacular, and I really commend that um, they were able to retain that place as a historical site yeah. and not tear it down, because there's a new Sikh temple right across the street. Hmm. But that um, uh, Sikh society that uh, um, built that, um, Call for the One Society, they had foresight to keep the old one, the historical one. So when you go there, you can just imagine, like, you know, I think they started building it or gathering to start it around 1908 or nine, and it finally was finished in 1911. So it's a pretty special place. That's like incredible. right out of a Western when you see it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and yet uh, South Asians are not often included in Westerns, right? We don't uh, we don't pop up, even though mm-hmm. you know we were here more than a hundred we years ago. Yeah. We were here. Well over, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what? Yeah, I mean, I know you have a that, yeah. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, though, like, what were some of the things that you learned that surprised you, you know, in your process of working on this film? Um, just, well, if you imagine, like, like the early, early pioneers, uh, uh, many of them were uneducated, you know, but they had foresight, you know, they gathered, they put money together, you know, there was, um, they... If you walk through the museum um, downstairs, you can kind of get little kind of cornerstone glimpses of the history. Yeah. But one story that really was um, interesting was uh, the Sikhs would be coming up from California, you know, uh, into Canada, because they were um, 
there was this movement called the Gadar Movement where uh, Indians were trying to help uh, India gain its independence. So considering Canada was under the British rule, that's treason. So they were meeting secretly often in the halls of that temple. Mm. And they had literature and, you know, um, kind of newsletters that they would smuggle to other parts of the community. You know, and people would put money and just kind of things like that. Then you would hear the other stories. You know, I met some other uh, lovely people that grew up in that community. And, you know, I, they talked about, you know, there would be a school and all the kids would, their, parents, their fathers would work in the mill. So the mill would have a little school for the kids. And that school would be really diverse in the sense of, you know, there was like Indian kids and Chinese kids and Japanese kids. And they were, you know, good friends. And then one lady, um, Ozzy, she shared a story of, um, you know, her neighbors being Japanese Canadian. And later they got interned and, you know, mm-hmm. the, they had asked, um, you know, her family, can you look after our property? So you're just like, oh, my God. So all these intersections, you know, of our history with other communities and allyship, it was pretty beautiful. And even her name, um, her neighbor gave it to her. I think it's a Japanese name, Osha. <laughs> and the, the Indians could pronounce it, which I'm calling her Ozzy. But just, you hear these really cute stories, uh, you know, from um, meeting in these basements, talking about, you know, Indian independence to growing up, you know, in a mill town and, and you know, the neighbors and all these, like, different visible minorities toiling in the, you know, the sawmill, but these friendships and, Oh, there's one story that stuck out. I had heard it before, even from like relatives, that um, the temple was built by lumber um, from a nearby sawmill that the the men carried on their shoulders. And now, you know, you can always hear those stories, right? We walked a hundred miles to school and back. To oh, the and day, three and feet thought, of snow. Yeah, right. yeah uh huh. <laughs> all of that. So I'm like, yeah, right. They carried all that wood on their shoulders. Seriously, and it's actually true. Uh, yeah. A lot of the. Uh, the um, Men worked at a nearby sawmill, and the owner said, you know, whatever you can carry on your shoulders, you can have that lumber. Wow. They obviously bought some, but they did carry a lot of it. And you could still see that original wood in a place. So that's a true story. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. What, what kind of discussions yeah. would you like to inspire in your audiences with this film? Or like, what kind of feelings would you like to leave them with? Um... Just that there, there's such a richness of stories here that we often don't tell, you know? Yeah. It's still pretty Eurocentric kind of history in BC, unfortunately. But, you know, if you look, there's so many uh, visible minority communities that really, you know, have a big hand in shaping BC, you know, um, mm. are real pioneers. And we often overlook those stories. And I think, you know, it's really important, especially. Um, you know, I, I would hear from my family, you know, you have to know your history, you know, you have to know where you came from to know where you're going. And I think that is really important. There is a, a, a guest book there. And if you read it, there's people from all over North America, uh, you know, Indians who come up visiting and they go and see that place. And it just touches their heart because it's this history, it's this resilience, it's this community, it's the feeling of belonging. And, you know, there, there's emotional writings in that book. So it really touches people's hearts. And yeah. it's important history. And I think, especially with kids today, you know, you face racism and discrimination. And if you really don't have a kind of, if you're not rooted in some history of where you come from and your community struggles and, you know, and resiliency, I think that, that gives you a good foundation. I think it's important. Yeah. So obviously I'm a huge fan of Because We Are Girls. Um, And I know that you made Because We Are Girls over the course of many years. And I am sure it must have imprinted Mm -hmm. on you as a filmmaker in some way, as a human being. So in what ways do you Mm -hmm. think we can see Because We Are Girls influence on you in this film? Well, it's... um Again, you know, uh, it, you you find an angle that touches you personally, and I think the story of this this love story and the separation, and you know, uh, it just touched my heart. Yeah. You know, and you read that letter, you can just imagine being away from your spouse for twenty years, and you know, imagine she's in India in a village, and her in laws and the kind of you know everybody in the village is like. He left you, you know, he's not coming back yeah. to you. She has no children, so they're like, you know, just, yeah, what that would feel like, you know, and how hard it must have been for her to keep having this faith that, yeah, one day he's going to get me. 
But a lot of women were left behind. That's a whole other story. So I think there's so much uh, history in that generation of women and those struggles. Yeah. And if you try to say because we're girls, you know, we look at family sexual abuse, um, you know that obviously that happened in India. And if, if that, when that happened and, 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 you know, there's no way women uh, could talk about it, you know, our yeah. mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, there's no way. Yeah. So, yeah, just again, the sort of the, yeah, no voice for women and trying to find that voice and honoring that voice yeah. and looking for those stories, I think it's really important, yeah. So, I mean, so if we, if we look at these films, then, the ones that you've, you've made mm-hmm. over the last several years, what, like, what is a, what is a Baljeet Sangra story? Like, what is, what does, what needs to be present in a story in order for you to make a documentary about it? Well, I think, uh, you know, I mean, I've done stories where, um, you know, you're not as connected because you know, you're a filmmaker, you have skills and you can tell a story. But if there's a story that you have a connection to that's in your community, I think you could just, you know, dive a little bit deeper. Mm. You can, you know, you could, I could speak Punjabi, I can understand sort of the nuances. Um, even with, because we're girls, um, you know, uh, just my relationship with the family and um, the trust and and just sort of understanding the issues because I come from the same community and I just think you can just go a little bit deeper because you're, you know, and you get that trust. Yeah. And I think it's really important that um, these stories be told by people from those communities. This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. Dot com.